This is the Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 610 with Nathan H. Lentz. If you want to go somewhere quick, go alone. If you want to go somewhere far, go together. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. How the heck are you? I hope you're well. Thank you for tuning in, guys, to this episode. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview that I did with Nathan Lentz. Now, if you can hear a chook in the background, that is a chook. It's my chook. He's outside trying to get inside, I'm guessing. Very friendly little fella. Anyway, this interview, guys, is with Nathan. Nathan is a professor of biology at the City University of New York. He is also the creator of the Human Evolution blog and This World of Humans podcast, which popularizes science with absolutely fascinating insight. His curiosity and passion for biology and human evolution makes him an expert in this field and also a superb teacher of these subjects. In this episode, we discuss his newest book, Human Errors, which is an illuminating, entertaining tour of the physical of our physical imperfections that make us human. Although it may appear quite a negative spin on the human design, the flaws behind the human design, it actually serves a grand purpose. If we can understand the strengths and weaknesses of our human bodies, then perhaps we can work better with them, allowing for greater collaborative progress of all humankind. So guys, I absolutely enjoyed this conversation with Nathan. I hope you do as well. Let me know what you think. You can jump on to thehiddenwhy.com. Uh, so this is episode 610. Check out the show notes. Leave your comments there. Connect with Nathan and myself and let us know what you think. Enjoy. Cheers. G'day, Nathan, and welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks uh, for the invitation. That's great to have you here. Uh, all the way from New York. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Queen, Queens, specifically. Queens? Yeah. The best borough. The best borough, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never been. I've got to get there. I say that in yeah. every actually in the, every interview I've done in the last couple of weeks. I think I've said that. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, tra- world travel is the one of the greatest joys in life. So you're always welcome here in New York. Yeah, I love it. Love it, and I'd, uh, I need to get there. Um, it was not always on the top of my uh, place places to visit, to be honest. But um, mm-hmm. in recent times, it has become more of interest, uh, and perhaps it's cool. just because of my connections there as well now. But um, yeah, cool. great to have you here on the show, mate, and congratulations to your newest book as well, Human Errors. Uh, it's uh, yeah, an exciting book, and I think um, the audience is going to get a lot of joy out of our conversation today. And uh, yeah, I will stick the book in the show notes as well so they can pick up a copy um, to pursue their, their curiosity and interests further in your work. You've also got another bestseller back uh, from 2016 called Not So Different. Um, finding human nature in animals, which is also um, of interest to me, and I'm sure the audience as well. So, yeah, congratulations on both of those uh, pieces. Thanks of work. very much. So, tell us a little bit about um, your history and, and and your studies, your field of work. Well, um, as a scientist, I've actually had really eclectic interests. I always seem to be changing fields every two or three years. Um, some of that's driven by the interests of my students, but that's really sort of my approach to biology. I have a really wide general interest. And one thing I tell my students, my strategy is not a particularly good one to stay funded and be successful as a scientist, to always change things up. But because, um, because the work I do generally doesn't cost a whole lot of money, I've been able to, been able to eke out a career uh, sort of with these eclectic interests and always changing uh, fields and looking at things from different angles. Um, and and I, that's what I love about science, honestly, is that the possibilities are endless and 
There's always new questions on all the different frontiers. The only, the, the, really the common thread through all my work is genetics uh, and DNA specifically. I really, I, I really feel very at home just looking through genomes, looking through uh, the genetic uh, information and trying to figure out how it all works. That, that, that's the driving question of my life is how DNA creates us. It's crazy. Um, so that's, yeah, and, uh, and that takes expression in weird ways. I mean, I do forensic science uh, research. So we, you know, we look at the bacteria that live on the human body and how they change after the death of the human host, you know, so that, that's supposed to aid uh, death investigations and that kind of thing. It takes me into funny places like that, but um, yeah. it's, always, it's always DNA. That's really the thing that I'm always uh, pursuing. The um, yeah okay that's uh, that's interesting and and it's interesting you sort of say you've got a wide field of interest rather than a sort of niche field of interest. What what do you yeah. think? Um, you know your advice to your students. Why do you think that's ne- not necessarily the best way to go, uh, other than you know yeah. receiving funding? Right. Well, funding is so much of what drives research. So that's really the key reason. Yeah. Is um, if you want to be successful as a scientist, you need to develop a reputation in a specific field. After years of you know contributions, then you're thought of as a leader in that field, and it's, it becomes easier to get grant money and that kind of thing. Whereas me, I'm jumping around all the time. Um, you know, my my of course I, I have a reputation. People know who I am, but you know, I'm not known for any one thing. I'm sort of all over the place. And what are you working on this year? Um, and it's a great way for me to satisfy my curiosity and to have a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but what I didn't know all along is that it was actually preparing me to be a popular science writer. Uh, that was that's the latest phase of my career. And um, because to to really write for the general public, um, you need to take a step back and look at the very biggest picture uh, that you can and why this work is important. Why should anybody care about this? And if you do what I do, and that is changing fields, you know, fairly often, you, you, you have to do that. You have to start with the very biggest picture and before you can then go and zoom in. So, um, you know, my interest is all over the place in biology. There's really no biological question that I don't find interesting. <laughs> um, so it's great for satisfying curiosity. And I have managed to stay, you know, keep my research funded. Um, but, you know, by, by keeping the question small and answerable. So I, I'm not super famous in any one field, but hopefully people think I'm doing solid science every time I publish a paper. Yeah, well, I love it um, and because it relates to sort of what I do here in a sense that I have a wide field of focus. I don't just focus on one particular aspect on the podcast and, um, you know, I don't niche down to anyone but it gives me this this uh, ability to entertain my curiosity on a wider scale and I, I just find that really enjoyable and that's why I like to write about, you know, philosophy to evolutionary science to whatever it might be through the people I speak with and uh, the research that I read. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting you say that, and I actually quite enjoy that process, but also know that um, a lot of people say that to be successful, you've really got to niche down into one particular category. And become yeah, that expert. is the best wisdom. Yeah. yeah, it's the best wisdom. So I always tell students, don't do what I do. Um, but uh, I managed to pull it off, but it's, it's really a, it's a better way to be happy than to be successful. But, you know, a lot of times I tell students, it's like the key in your life is to find a job that you enjoy doing so much that it really doesn't feel like work and that, and you will be successful then. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think variety is the spice of life and I, I, I apply that principle all over the place with my work, with what I eat, with uh, where I travel, you know, I, I tend to always want to try new things. So, um, that, that's how I do my science as well. Yeah. Do you get bored easy? 
Very easy. And that, 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 that's, that I explains it. it. <laughs> yeah, I always thought of that as a weakness. I really do get burnt out and bored very fast. And I think it was a weakness or it could have been, but I found a way to make it a career. <laughs> and part of that is, you know, there's different ways to be a scientist. You know, you can be an industry or you can be at a medical center, you know, research institute. But I am at a undergraduate, primarily undergraduate institution. So I'm a college professor and a big chunk of my job, about half of my job is really teaching undergraduates. Well, when you're at an institution like that, um, it really is more freeing uh, in the sense that um, I'm allowed to pursue my interests. As long as I'm publishing with some regularity, that's it's solid stuff that, you know, that gets citations and that, you know, is, is well respected. You know, I can't, you know, publish terrible stuff, but as long as I'm publishing solid stuff, that's sort of good enough um, because they don't, they know that I'm not coming up with the cure for cancer. That's, that's medical centers and research institutes do that kind of work. What I do is I do science with my students, you know, with it, it's almost a training ground for future scientists. And so as long as I'm doing something reasonable and helpful and, and solid, teaching them how to be scientists, what it is that I'm doing, the institution doesn't care. Um, they don't have any specific research goals like that, like mm. an institute would. So yeah. I, it's, it's the, being a college professor, I have to say, is the best life. It really is. <laughs> if you're if you're just a curious person who wants to be a lifelong le- learner, that's, that's I always say it's the best life. Yeah, like I speak to plenty of professors, and it always uh, inspires me. Actually, um, I'm certainly not yeah. a professor myself, but um, the lifestyle of that because that's you know what I love doing is just reading and, and researching, and then trying to interpret it in my own uh, language uh, for right. the benefit of others. But anyway, look, it's really uh, interesting stuff, and um, I do I'm really interested in your work. So um, yeah, well done. You've got a great blog and a podcast as well. Yeah, yes, that's right. So um, my podcast is called This World of Humans. And it's, uh, it's designed to take research studies um, that are newly published and talk about how they actually did the work. So it's exciting stuff, but also what we do that I, a lot of science podcasts don't do is really dive into the methodology of, of how the science actually works, sort of the nitty-gritty details that a lot of sort of media attention of science sort of glosses over that because it seems too technical that nobody would be interested. And we try to make it interesting and make it accessible mm. to the general public. So we focus on biology and social science, uh, especially social science that has like a strong biology component to it, just because that's my expertise. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We do little stories and and we try to make it engaging to the public, but we also couple our stories with classroom teaching guides. So it's especially for science educators. Uh, I mean, the general public casual listener will have a good time, too. But on the website, every episode has like these classroom supplements uh to, to helpful in a class so that's been a new effort of mine i've been doing it for about that's a cool. year hmm. yeah it's a lot of fun and it, it's kind of it's an extension of my science yeah, a lot writing. of work too behind so, it yeah yeah there's a lot of work behind the scenes but um you know communicating interesting science to the public has become a passion of mine i really enjoy doing it and i think that when people see how science actually works not just what it does but how it does it i think people it demystifies the whole thing it doesn't seem like it's this totally inaccessible crazy thing that goes on you know with chemicals and white coats and all that and no it's actually just regular people who have curious minds and they're tinkering around tinker around in their labs and they discover cool stuff you know so um i I try to try to bring the public into the laboratory so to speak yeah it's cool i think it's important i'm actually uh disappointed in, in a slight sense that i Missed biology in my education. I never really, yeah, I must have touched on it for a little time and 
Um, yeah. It's, you know, if, it, if I knew it then, geez, I would have been right into it, I think, and probably continued well, on that. it's never too cause... late. No, it's not. It's never too late. It's not. And the thing about biology is that if you had taken it in university, um, so much is new now. I mean, it moves so fast that, uh, um, you know, that knowledge would have been obsolete anyway. So it sort of doesn't matter that you didn't have it back then. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 40 myself, and I know – my general biology textbook that I used back then is way out of date. So, <laughs> um, it, the only way to really stay on top of it is just to be a lifelong learner and to read, you know, be a reader. And, uh, yeah, it's a, we're discovering new stuff all the time. There's things we That's do great. now routinely. Yeah. There, there's things we do routinely now that wasn't even on the radar 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's moving so fast. It's an exciting time. That's good. Um, I think it's really important, like some of the advice you've given there, like it's never too late. I think that's great advice, but also the advice that, you know, find something that you actually enjoy to do and then pursue that. Um, you know, yeah. as, as good as it is advice to niche down and just focus on something, um, that might be good for the right type of person, but certainly for people like you and, and myself, um, it just doesn't mm-hmm. work. I'm, I'm, you know, we're too, too restless. I'm one of those people that get quite bored as well. But um, I want to talk on yeah. curiosity for a second. And I just read uh, their biology, their biography, sorry, of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh-huh. don't know if you've read that, but um, curiosity certainly played a big role in his career and his life. Um, what, is, what is the biological reasons behind our curiosity? Oh, that's a great question. So I think that this is the one the one thing that we have that really separates us from the rest of our animal cousins is a mind that can recreate, uh, the world. You know, we can, we can close our eyes and sort of recreate the world in our minds. This, this ability to, to be introspective, to contemplate and deliberate. Um, we don't just react to the world. We really, uh, shape the world and, and recreate it. And I think curiosity is a huge driver of that. And, um, and in fact, I think when, when early humans or, or human ancestors were making sense of the world around them, I think the key thing that they were doing is what we call pattern recognition. You know, they were trying to observe and watch and then say, okay, what is the larger truth in this pattern that I see? You know, whether it's, it's watching animals migrate or watching the water flow or seasonal differences, rainy season, wet season, um, and then they say, okay, well, we've seen this happen three times in a row in this way. This must be a rule. This must be a pattern. If I come here next year, I'm going to find this, this herd also migrating. Um, and I think that it served us so well in the past to be curious about the world and try to figure it out, try to, you know, the, to find the patterns. And the problem is that, of course, we, when you have the ability to find patterns, you'll find them even when they're not there. <laughs> and that's always, it's a, it's a, it's one of the weaknesses I talk about in the book actually, is that we're so prone to overinterpret certain evidence or, or, or look for a much uh, more concrete picture than we really have in front of us. But that's an extension of the ability to find patterns and to, to seek and to understand. So curiosity is, is, uh, is what made us great at what's, it's what's, it's what's propelled the expansion of our brains, but it also can get tripped uh, in the wrong ways. In fact, one whole chapter of my book is on what, what we call cognitive biases. It's ways the brain sort of overuses its rules um, and, and, it, and its, its way of seeing the world. So it's not all upside. You know, all these things have a cost. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, p- pattern recognition's almost like figuring out the, the algorithms behind how nature works. Is that so we can predict better? 
Yes, exactly. So, and, and what, what they're called in the brain or, or in the world of psychology is called heuristics. So a heuristic is something we use to measure our experience against and then interpret. And th- when you have those, those heuristics, they're really, really helpful to make sense of something really quickly. So you observe an event, you immediately, you use your heuristics to figure out what, what happened. But the pro- problem is, like anything where you're you're taking a snapshot and then then interpreting a larger picture, it's very easy for that to go wrong, right? And we've seen even that our own brains can um, can edit our memories for us in, in a way that makes them inaccurate. So we've we've seen this like with eyewitnesses to a crime. Um, you know, you'll witness an event, and then in the process of thinking about that event, recalling the event, talking to others the memory will actually change in your brain. And you're, of course, not aware of it because, you know, you're inside your own brain. So you don't know it. You're actually editing your memory every time you tell the story. I don't know. Have you ever had this happen to you where you, you, you know, you tell a story in a first person like, oh, I was, I did this in high school. And then someone tells you, that wasn't you. You walked, you were there, but so-and-so did it. And it's you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you put yourself into the first person and you didn't do it on purpose. You weren't trying to like fool anybody, but that's the way your brain works is it just gets changed over time. You've told that story so many times that you put yourself into the role of the protagonist <laughs> and then someone reminds you, you know, that wasn't you. That was Billy. He did that. You were there, but you didn't do it. And you're like, oh yeah, that's happened to me where I, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I was so sure that was me. <laughs> so our brain, you know, these little rules, these little tricks obviously are overall a plus. So the curiosity helping us to to figure out the patterns and obviously for the purpose of, I'm assuming, survival um, so we can can operate more effectively and efficiently in our environment. However, with the creative side of our human brain, we can sort of adapt those patterns to suit and then they become a cognitive bias. Is that right? Yeah, basically. What... what, what, um Another way to think of it is anything that you do quickly, you don't do carefully. And so our brain has evolved a lot of tricks, a lot of shorthand to do things quickly so that you don't have to take a lot of time. Imagine this. Let's say you walk into a crowded room and you see only the back of someone's head, but it's your friend or your spouse or your whatever. You immediately recognize them, right? With very, very, very incomplete information, you've recognized that person. And your brain has matched up that input with the memories of that person. And you're like, ah, there she is. But, yeah. you know, that could, that's very easy to fool that system because anytime that's anywhere close to that, all of a sudden you'll trick it. And then in your mind, it gets, uh, you know, so, so these things are prone to errors. They're prone to over-interpreting evidence. Um, one example I use in the book, too, is that um, you can read tons and tons of studies on a certain topic and then one anecdote from someone you know will have more power on your decision-making than all of those studies that you read mm. because numbers, numbers don't resonate with us, but people do, stories do. So uh, I, used to, I picked on my dad a little bit for this where, where he would not wear a seatbelt because he heard a story of someone who got trapped in a car that, that went over in, underwater and they couldn't get out because of the seatbelt and they drowned. And it's like, now, wait a second. Interesting. <laughs> even, even if that story were true, which it probably wasn't, but even if it were, 
I mean, how many thousands of lives are saved by seatbelts compared to the very rare cases? <laughs> but that story had a great impact on him because it's a person. It's a, it's a tangible thing that he can wrap his brain around. But we don't wrap our brain around data. Data doesn't That's very interesting. Stories. So that's the yeah, power stories. of, of stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Is because it's it's a, connected with people and, and human nature. Yeah, exactly. More so than numbers. Yeah. We're, we're notoriously bad at making decisions um, because of this, right? A lot of we make a lot of poor choices, and political campaigns are all based around this. You don't see political campaigns telling you data <laughs> and citing research very often, but they'll tell stories all day. Because they know that's what that's what resonates with people, and those stories might be representative of a larger truth, but they might not be. And um, so, a lot of these things that we think are positive, this big, powerful brain, it's very easy to manipulate it uh, to do what I would consider to do something negative, which is you know deceive and help you know lead us to making poor choices. So, I, in my book, uh, the title is Human Errors, and it's the idea that we're just we're not perfect. We're we're great, but we're not perfect. Um, mm. But I think I think there's greatness in knowing these these shortcomings because it gives us it gives us a better sense of ourselves. I mean, wouldn't we rather know the truth about what we're good at and what we're not good at, um, so that you can we can live lives that are sort of more in concert with our biology rather than fighting against our biology all the time? Um, Absolutely, so I, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, the, the purpose of sort of looking at human errors by design. Um, mm-hmm. what would be the purpose of that? I mean, you sort of explain it in, in the book, but, yeah. um, yeah, give us your, your reasoning. Well, yeah. So if you take the anatomy, for example, so I start the book with a chapter on anatomy and, and poor design in our anatomy. Um, well, once you sort of understand the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the human body, you can actually carry yourself and live your life in a way that's more in line with your strengths and, and less than your weaknesses. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, we are not there, – there is a device that all of us use pretty much all day every day that we were definitely not designed for and has long-term negative consequences. And that device is the chair. <laughs> the chair was not ever part of our evolutionary history. We did not sit, at least not in that posture, but we've become so used to it now that it's like, oh, i got to sit down. That's where I'm most comfortable. No, no, no. We would lay down. We would squat. We would lean. We would stand. But we never sat. And so now we find, and study after study tells us, that the longer you spend sitting, then the worse health, health outcomes you have, especially with yeah. weight management, but, but other things as well. And by the way, even regular exercise doesn't undo it. And Are you standing is, up right now? I am standing. You're right. I'm standing <laughs> and I'm, I'm, pacing, I'm pacing in my room because when, as much as possible, I try to stay on my feet now. And it's, it has made a big difference. I've dropped a few pounds doing nothing else but standing. But also I just – my back is stronger. Everything about my body seems – especially posturally seems to be better because I stand all as much as I can rather than sitting. Damn, you um, feel guilty now. First. I'm sitting down. Yeah, yeah, it's hard at first. Trust me. I, I did it and I have to – you know, I had it just for an hour and then I'd have to sit for an hour and stand for an hour. And sit. But they've done studies that even regular exercisers um, – you know, really, you know, you, you don't earn the right to just sit down all day because, oh, then you'll go out and run five miles. No, you really, I mean, run the five miles. That's great. And we are built for, to be runners, but um, you really, you really just need to minimize how much time you spend just sitting down. So that's, so that's just one example. Just one example. Um, there's lots of examples of, I think, of how you can live a better life once you realize, you know, what your body's limitations are. 
So really understanding what the body, how the body is being designed so we can see then how best we should use it and how perhaps we should right. use it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So what are some of the, um, I suppose, the, the best insights that you've came across in, in writing this book? Like what, what are well, some of the, one, the few that stand yeah. out? Without giving too much away, of course. Not giving too much away. Well, um, I mean, I think I... We're coming to a conclusions about our relationship with food. Um, we have, I think, <laughs> or a species that have a very poor relationship with our with our food, with our diet, and we're only now really beginning to understand why. Um, and and hmm. um, so, let me give you an example. the The diet that we now eat does not resemble whatsoever the diet that we were eating for millions of years before the dawn of agriculture. And agriculture is really 10 to 15,000 years ago. Yeah. So th- that's the evolutionary blink of an eye. There's been almost no biological evolution since then. Very little. There's some, but very little. Um, so we were built to eat, um, and this is going to gross a lot of people out, but roots and sticks and leaves and worms and bone marrow and the occasional windfall of meat. But that was our staples. We spent hours every day chewing very tough food, um, unpalatable, bitter. Uh, and the one thing that there was very, very little of in our diet, well, the two things, was sugar and carbohydrates. Hmm. Very little of that was in our diet for a long, long time. All of a sudden, agriculture gets invented and carbohydrates become the base of all of the world's diet. So if you think about what the staple food is around the world. And that's we're we, talking, what, 10,000 or so years? Is yeah, that? yeah, 10 to 50. Farming started in a few places yeah. at the same time, but between 10 and 15,000. But now at the base of all the world's cuisines are all the, what we call the cereals, uh, wheat, rice, corn, millet, oats, barley. All of yeah. those things are high carbs, low nutrients, and they're the base of all of our food, and they're, it's really the worst things for us. <laughs> and so that really began farming, which Jared Diamond has called the worst invention of humanity. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, by the way, because it allowed everything else. But um, Jared Diamond, now he that, published, um, what was his most popular book there? Well, he's done a bunch. He, the, the one that, that where he, he makes that quote um, is called, well, actually there's two, but one of them is called The World Until Yesterday. Yeah, and he talks about hunter gatherer lifestyle and and all the, the and, that, and everything that sort of went wrong when we invented agriculture. Mm. And that one of them, one of them, I definitely agree with him on is that our relationship with food has been very poor ever since agriculture was invented. Um, and so, and so you can eat, and the paleo diet, by the way, m- misses the mark on some points. But what it what it gets correct, I think, is minimizing carbohydrates. Um, and you know, maximizing fats and proteins, and I think that is a much healthier way to live. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Um, so in that in that period um, over the last ten to fifteen thousand years, have we not in some way evolved to that diet preference? So it doesn't seem to 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 have uh, to have much evolution on that on hmm. that front. Um, now have we evolved at least a little, it's possible that we're a little better with our carbohydrate metabolism than we were before agriculture. Um, but we, we don't see a lot of that, that's for sure. But there has been some evolution, which is interesting. For example, um, in European populations, but also in a few other isolated populations, the ability to drink milk into adulthood that came about after agriculture, of course, because there was never any reason to drink milk 
beyond the fourth or fifth year of life. And so we turned those genes off. And everybody, the whole population was lactose intolerant until agriculture. And then you had these, it was actually goats at first. So you had these goats. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wow. So here's a really rich, nutritious food, which is clean too. It was actually the cleanest source of water you could find. And it was also portable. Um, they had walking along with us, we had this delicious factory of great food, but we couldn't digest it. So there was a great selective pressure to sort of turn those genes back on. That's for the lactose. Yeah. For the lactose digestion, the ability to to digest lactose. So we kept those genes on. And then whenever that, you know, spontaneous mutation emerged, those people had a huge advantage because here's this food that walks right along with you and it constantly produces clean, healthy food, very nutritious, calorie rich. You know, it was, milk is, is as close to a superfood as it comes. And so how long have we been drinking so. milk for then? Have we been drinking it? About 8,000 years if you're talking about the European population. We've seen the mutations for lactate, what's called lactase persistence. We've seen them in other populations too more recently. But in Africa, there's a group, um, there's a group, an indigenous group who have also evolved this, also in, in South, uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah. But the European population is the largest group. I mean, basically all modern Europeans... Have, have have this this lactase persistence, or most of us do anyway, hmm. and it's it's from what's called the LBK people, where the earliest farmers in Europe, and pretty much everybody seems to be descended from them. We know very very little about them, but what we do know is that they were farming and they they started drinking milk, <laughs> and it's a huge advantage to them, and that's probably why they overtook all the other populations in Europe is because. Wow, they had right along with them riding riding on the horses next to them, or, or next to the horse they were riding on, I should say, was this portable source of continuous food and water. Uh, well, some might argue so, that it's it's you know it's a, it's a, a a poor choice that we started drinking milk because we're the only mammal um, that does that from another animal, and we're the only ones that still drink it into adulthood. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I understand a little bit about why people would think that, but milk, milk is very healthy uh, as long as you can digest it. Now, people who have either a dairy allergy or they're not lactose tolerant, obviously, it's not going to be a good choice for them. But for the rest of us, I mean, we digest the proteins down to amino acids right in our stomach, so it's as you know, there's nothing unhealthy or unnatural about it. Drinking the milk versus eating the meat, you know, it's the same same thing. Um, and it's, it's nutritious. It's got protein. It does have some sugar. So, so it's not, you know, it's not perfectly like our, you know, pre, uh, farming foods, but it had, uh, you know, it's, it's healthy. It's, it's, it's a good food for you, especially now we think of it as unhealthy now because it's high calories and calories are not our problem anymore. In fact, we all probably have more calories than we should, but back in those days, getting enough calories was the big challenge. Yeah. So so it was I mean, I think that the lactase persistence was a major event in in Europe, uh, you know, eight eight thousand years ago or so. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've I've never um been diagnosed as being lactose intolerant. Um however I have I stopped drinking milk and noticed a big oh. difference in my level of health. Yeah, and that's so I'm a big fan of listening to your body. And so anybody who says, I gave up this food and I feel better, I'm always like, good, do that. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody has a, their own relationship with their body. And there's little quirks I do that I can't explain the science behind it, but I know I feel better uh, when I do that. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in listening to your body. So what, what, um, what sort of – so you're sort of saying lean more towards the paleo as far as diet preference would be well, better for I mean, us certain- based on our evolutionary history? 
Yeah, I think that there's definitely some good parts about the paleo diet. I mean, it's I mean, we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that it's a true paleolithic diet, because like I said, unless you're eating worms and sticks and bone marrow and stuff like that, you're not really mimicking the paleolithic diet. But the overall theme of, you know, high protein, high fat um, and low sugar, low carbohydrates, that that general theme, whatever you want to call that, because there's other diets before the paleo uh, trend that had that same theme. So, um, you know eat a lot of plants, a lot of leafy stuff that's low calorie, but high volume. And, um, you know, I eat, try to eat as much leafy stuff as I can, a lot of roughage. And I'm really big on fruit. I eat five or six pieces of fruit a day. Um, but that has a lot of sugar because again, the fruit that we eat now does not resemble the fruit that we ate way back when, you know, we've selected these apples to be huge and lush yeah, and sweet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, prehistoric a bit more apples, tangy right? back then, and probably less, less, yeah. less of an occurrence. Yeah, exactly. It would have been bitter and, and fibrous, and um, you know, and, and and also tough. I mean, we we have made it nice and soft uh, as well. We, we we like I said, we would have spent hours a day chewing, um, especially before fire was invented. Now, now we've had fire for a long time, but um, before we started cooking our food. Um, I mean, if you, I don't know if you've eaten a lot of raw meat in your life, but it's very hard. <laughs> to oh, chew. Yeah, I used to eat lots of it, <laughs> actually. Yeah, yeah it's, you spend a lot of time chewing each bite, right? Um, <laughs> which isn't a bad thing. It can slow you down a little bit, which is good. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm personally, I'm happy to cook my food. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. What? Um, how do we? How do we go about getting bone marrow? So that was probably our earliest foray into meat eating because our ancestors, if you go far enough back, were almost certainly vegetarian. And the reason I say that is um, most of the species that are alive today that we that we have recent ancestry with, so chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans, they're, they're all primarily vegetarian. So you can you can deduce that we were vegetarian in our past and then and probably some bugs and things like that were in the mix as well big bugs and worms but bone marrow there's a really strong argument for that being our big foray into meat eating Hmm. because you can find it without hunting um you it's we scat we probably scavenged before we hunted so you would find a carcass a large carcass and other creatures that are much bigger and more powerful than us had taken off most of the meat uh, but what gets left behind is the bones, and it's still relatively fresh, so it's safe to eat it. So I think we most anthropologists think that we probably began eating meat by eating bone marrow because you can, you know, it's tough to get. Uh, you have to crack open the large bones, and you know, the big cats and other things might have just, you know, left the big bones, and then we came along with our big brains, figured out that oh, if we pound it against this stone long enough, it'll break open, and then there's this rich, delicious bone marrow inside. Mm. So I think that that was sort of our first foray. Cool. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, we started hunting, you know, not, not long after that. And what, what are your thoughts then? Like if the vegetarian diet perhaps was where we were, um, yeah, thoughts mm-hmm. on vegetarian diets and vegan diets, obviously a good thing. Um, I think you can be very healthy as a vegan. And I think um, you do, you do have to, there's a couple of vitamins you have to be a little bit careful of and, and um, amino acids as well. But if you if you choose your diet, so I, I think you have more work to do as a vegan to, to be healthy. But um, and you also finding all the, the foods can be a challenge, too. And some cities are not particularly vegan friendly, but um, you can be healthy. But you, what, what I worry about with a lot of the vegetarians I know is that they eat a lot of starchy stuff, especially when they're out to eat at a restaurant. Unless you're eating just salad, there's really nothing substantive on the menu in a lot of these places. Um, 
unless you're getting basically starch, you know, pasta and, and all this. And so that's, that's, I th- think you can have a very unhealthy vegan diet. Um, yeah. You just got to so watch I, out how much of those carbohydrates, yeah, you, processed carbohydrates anyway that you consume on this. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and getting your protein is an issue. So, and some people don't really mix very well with soy. Soy seems to be this, one of these things where some, some people do great with it and others don't. So where you're getting your, your protein is an issue, but, um, and vitamin B12, which is, by the way, I do write about this one in the book. Vitamin B12 is the one thing you really can't get from a pure vegan diet. Um, so you have to supplement. And a lot of soy milk comes with it supplemented with vitamin B12 just because they know this you know, it's sort of a public health thing. But let me tell you the story. This is a very specific uh, thing in the book that I talk about, design flaw in the human body. B12 is the weirdest one. So B12 only comes from animal sources. You can't get it from plants, but it makes you wonder, well, what about all these herbivore animals? Most animals are herbivores, cows mm. and horses, cows and horses. And I mean, uh, mo- by far the majority of animals are herbivores. So how are they get in their vitamin B12? Well, it turns out they have bacteria in their intestines, which make vitamin B12 for them. I mean, it's a side product for them. They're not doing it to be nice, but <laughs> they, um, they excrete vitamin B12 and then those animals absorb it. And so, okay, well, why don't we do that? Well, it turns out we do have those bacteria, and they're in our intestine, and they are making vitamin B12. But here's the trick. Mm. They, do it in our, they do it in our large intestine, and we can only absorb vitamin B12 in our small intestine. <laughs> so it's in the wrong order. It's, it's bad plumbing. Well, the hell? So, yeah, <laughs> Has right? that changed? Like, has that, has that then evolved like I, that? We, the, we don't know how, how far back that goes because none of these tissues mm. um, fossilize, right? This is all soft yeah, tissue. There, there's mm. no way to ask this about a, a fossil. Um, but definitely, I mean, our vegetarian ancestors must not have had this problem because they would have died. But at some point, once we started eating meat, the, the rearrangement of these bacteria in our gut must have happened. And since it didn't have any consequence, we had meat in our diet, so it was tolerated. But now we're stuck with this bad plumbing. But think about this. We have... We need vitamin B12, and we have the bacteria that make it, but we don't absorb it in that place. So we send, we make this vitamin B12, the bacteria do, and we send it to the toilet instead of absorbing it. <laughs> That's basically what's happening. Yeah, and I wonder um, why from eating, you know, starting to consume marrow and, and meat, um, if that was the case, that it was in our lower intestine originally, why it moved. Yeah, I don't, don't, we don't know. Hmm. It's, it's, and that's a very hard question to ask. Because, like I said, none of these tissues fossilize. Yeah, you can't. Um, yeah, there's really no. And even if they could, they wouldn't really. You know, the, the bacteria wouldn't be there. So it's it's a really it's a tough question. But we know at some point. I mean, our ancestors, our vegetarian ancestors, must have been fine. But at some point, the bacteria went only to the small, the large intestine, and we only absorb in the small intestine. So all that nice vitamin B12 we excrete it. And in fact, one thing I say in the book is, um, the studies have actually been done that you could eat human waste as a source of vitamin B12. I don't recommend it. There's a lot of problems with that, but there is vita- there is enough vitamin B12 in your waste that that you would be healthy if you could just absorb it. Um, a lot of people are doing talking about um, you know eating um, uh, healthy specimens poo capsules yeah. I suppose. And that is a nice well, way to put it. Well, they've done um, what they call fecal transplants. They've that's done right, yeah. capsules and that kind of thing. Yeah, but that but that would be such a small amount. That, that's really just trying to get the bacteria there. I don't, you know, it wouldn't capture enough of the actual B12, I think, to be helpful. But um, but it is it's just one of those quirky designs that, that how could this have been tolerated except 
that when it happened, it didn't bother anybody. It's the same thing with vitamin C. Most animals don't need vitamin C. We do because we lost the ability to make it ourselves. So now we need it in our diet. That should have killed – the first animals should have died of scurvy. Why didn't – when they had this horrible mutation where they lose vitamin C, why didn't they die of scurvy? The answer is because they were living in Africa. And in Africa, there's there's vitamin C around. There's you know citrus fruits and stuff like that. So, so, so basically what – one of the themes of my book is when you take the pressure off of the body to be perfect, it loses function. And our big brain evolved to solve all these problems so that our bo- and our body didn't have to be perfect anymore. So that's what we're left with. We're left with a – I mean think about it this way. How many people have vision problems? Um, but, what ha- but think about like an eagle or a hawk. Do you think any of them suffer from poor vision? Of course not. You would die immediately if you were a bird of prey with bad vision. There's no way you could eke out a living. But in humans, we have – we have division of labor. We have a social culture where, oh, well, you you might not be a good hunter because of your vision, but you could contribute in other ways. You can be a homesteader. You could be a, a gatherer. You could be a shaman. You could be whatever. But there's there's lots of different ways to, can, to be a human, to be a successful contributing human. Hmm. So none of us has to be perfect as long as you know we spread the skills around. <laughs> um, and, I, and, and that's great. So that's why I, I mean the story of this book is actually very uplifting because we didn't have to be perfect. We could rely on each other and our big brains to solve these problems. And we're still doing that, yeah? Yeah, definitely we are. Well, I don't know. Recently, not, maybe not quick contrary, enough? But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever be the best decision makers, but we definitely are a smart species if we could just sort of use our powers for good. We're also a very selfish species. I mean, all species are, so we have to manage um, manage these instincts, which are, uh, um, you know, can be good or bad. But so, with with the likes of eyesight, I mean, is that something that has deteriorated in us? As we, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, I'm glad you asked about that. So, um, one of the things about why so many people need corrective lenses is that we spend a majority of our childhood indoors. You know, you're in school all day, you're inside, um, and so your eyes as they're developing and as they're growing, they don't get as accustomed to distance vision. So, and they've done these studies now hmm. where of families that where the kids are mostly outside versus mostly inside. And there's a huge difference in their need for glasses. And most hunter gatherer tribes. Um, now it's not that nobody uh, has bad vision, but it's just way, way less common. So it does seem to be the science is really set, you know, honing in on this truth that, Spending the majority of your childhood indoors does make it very likely that you're going to need uh, that you're going to become nearsighted. So you would need the uh, um, the, the vision. I mean, the, the vision correction. But um, so so this is an example of yes, we've gotten worse. But it's not it's not evolution. You know, it's not genetic. Uh, we can fix it. And in fact, once I was reading these studies, my own two kids. You know, I really became cognizant of get them outside, get them outside. And it's not just ex- <laughs> it's not just exercise. You know, it's also for their eyes. Um, it's it's. I mean, it's better for them to play outside anyway for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, I assume your family uh, goes through that often. Like, what's dad doing now? Why the hell are we eating this stuff? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Plate of worms. <laughs> like, what the heck? <laughs> My little guinea pigs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, the science on this, though, you know, I try to not to get too excited about preliminary stuff. Uh, but the science, for example, on the eyes is, is it's, I think we were at consensus there and this is new. I mean, in the last five years, we've sort of understood this, but, hmm. um, but I love, I love the story of the eyes though, because again, it's something that we can now 
now that we understand it, we can change it. We are not purely a victim of our shortcomings. We can often overcome them. And actually, even when it's too late, we can overcome them. And the perfect example of a human error being overcome is I use the advance from this book to get laser eye surgery for my eyes. Hmm. <laughs> so this is an example of a human brain in this case, in this case, mine. No, no, I shouldn't say mine. It's whoever invented laser surgery really deserves the credit. But, um, you know, so we're not just subject to our own um, shortcomings. Once we understand them and thoroughly, you know, we can, we can try to overcome them. And I think um, we're better for it. So I, I now see 2020. Um, but I, whereas I was 2400 and something before that. Um, so that's an example of the human brain overcoming, you know, shortcoming. Yeah, I, I don't know how to sort of put this question, but it seems that we're very quick to adapt to the environment as far as certain functions deteriorating. Um, mm-hmm. But then our, I don't know, is it our genome that is very slow to, yeah, so, to change? So it's, it's, yeah, what happens is we have a background rate of mutation that's just happening, right? Random mutations are happening all the time, and most of them are bad. Um, you know, and when it really hurts the function of a gene, then that person's you know worse off. You know, probably you know it won't be successful in the long run. And it doesn't matter; it doesn't have to kill you immediately. If it just reduces your fitness over evolutionary time, it'll be eliminated. Um, so mutations are always, sort of always happening, and they're almost always bad, but occasionally they're good. The good ones are really, really rare, though. So that's like that example of all of a sudden now we can drink milk as adults. You know, that, the mutation that turned that gene back on or, or kept it on, um, that was a really rare event. But it does happen. In fact, it's happened multiple places. But the kind of mutations where you lose function, those are really common. So, so if you are providing yourself with vitamin C in your diet, mm. you will you will eventually lose the ability to make it in a population, not in a person, but in a population. And I know that sounds like the eating of the vitamin C is what causes the mutations. It's not. It's random. But as soon as it happens, it'll have no consequence, and it could randomly you know take over the population. So um, that those negative mutations, what we call loss of function mutations, are way more common than gain-of-function mutations. So it's much easier to lose things than to get them back. The example, the way I explain mm-hmm. it in the book is, if a lightning strikes a house, odds are the house is worse off. <laughs> I, but it's theoretically possible that it could actually, you know, fix the house in some way. I mean, I, 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 so maybe that's where the analogy yeah. falls apart. But the point, <laughs> but the point is that, that generally when these, if you consider mutations lightning strikes, very rarely are they going to be good lightning strikes. It's almost always going to, going to hit the function but occasionally it does uh, do something good in your genome and thank god for that because all of all innovation everything new that we've ever come up with in terms of evolution has come from these mutations so the question is now moving forward with the the rapid change of our lifestyles technology uh, being a key player here how do yeah. you see that affecting the design the human design and and how well we can sort of either stick up with it or, or deteriorate yeah, I mean, I think with medical science, we have we've largely eliminated one key evolutionary force, and that is natural selection. So generally, uh, in the developed countries anyway, almost everyone that's born lives to reproductive age. So 
natural selection eliminating uh, things just just really doesn't happen very often anymore. However, we're still evolving because natural selection is only one part of the story. Yeah. Right. Other evolutionary forces, and now, um, for example, who reproduces and who doesn't is a different. It's not based on who's healthier or not. It's based on choice. Yeah. Some people just choose not to, or choose to have only one kid, or whatever. And other, you know, like in J- Japan and and uh, Italy, for example, France, birth rates are very, very, very low. But in Afghanistan, they're really, really high. Yeah. So you know, we're not we're not all reproducing equally. So there is some evolution going on. But your question was about technology. So technology has first eliminated natural selection for the most part. The next thing that's going to happen is we're going to be able to fix genetic diseases. Um, and we're very much on the cusp of that. We have the knowledge we need to fix genes like cystic fibrosis, um, hemophilia, sickle cell, uh, Tay-Sachs, some other sort of common genetic diseases. But these are going to be the exception because simple genetic diseases that are based on one gene and we know what that gene is, that's going to be easy for us to fix. With CRISPR-Cas9 technology, I think we're going we're gonna to do that in, in, in soon. Yeah. But – Everything else that's wrong with our body that I write about in my book, we don't understand the genetics. So we're nowhere near being able to fix, for example, our faulty knees and our weird ankles. We don't know what genes are even involved in it. So we would we'd have no clue how to fix those genetically. So I don't think that is these. I know people worry about like the designer babies and things like that. We that we are so far from that because we have we don't know how the genes make the human body. We have such a, just a hint of it. Um, so if you wanted to say, fix your knees using genes, we wouldn't even know where to start. We so then we'll no we bypass that with robotics. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So I think we'll, we'll tweak the body in these non-genetic ways. So you won't pass that on to your children and you won't, you won't fix it permanently. Every individual with between nanotechnology and stem cells, I think we will end up with the ability to sort of regenerate tissue and keep ourselves young and healthy for longer, but we'll never make it so that you don't have these problems in the first place. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but I mean, it is not within a hundred years. It is not within 200 years because we just have made essentially zero progress in understanding all the intricate anatomy and how that flows from genes. We know that it does because we mm. mess with genes. We mess, you know, we mess with genes and all of a sudden the development goes haywire, but you know, the genes for the knee, we don't know. There's hundreds of them probably. And they all probably do other things as well. So you might fix the knee and screw up your elbow, you know? So <laughs> it's, it's not going to be an easy fix. I think that microsurgery, nanotechnology, and stem cells will be much that, – that we might actually get somewhere on, but not genetics, unfortunately. Wow. <laughs> Mate, uh, fascinating conversation. Um, really informative and I'd, I'd just love to do it a, a second time with you at some stage because uh, we could probably talk for hours by the sounds of it so uh, yeah, sure, thanks I'd be for happy, you'd be happy to come back on yeah let's do it let's do it for sure uh, mate I've got 10 quick questions or so that I go through with every uh, guest so let's just run through these with you uh, is the this first... like rapid fire yeah yeah well it depends yeah, right. I'll leave it to yeah. you but um, <laughs> the first one is do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success Yes, I do. That's a great question. Um, I am an early riser and I think it's made a big difference in my life. And, um, and I'm also a runner and both of those contribute to my productivity and my mental health. Mm. Um, I'm not an early riser by, because it's fun. I hate getting up early. (laughs) I am not a morning person. 
but I get out of bed around six o'clock and I'm in the office before well before eight. Nobody's there really for an hour or two. And I get a lot of what I call my contemplative work done before anybody shows up. So getting up an early start where you're by yourself for a couple hours has made a big difference for me. And then running for very much the same reason. I, I just think when I'm running, I, I, ha- I run for about an hour, 75 minutes if it's a longer run, and I just clear my mind and think. And I think it brings me in better touch with my feelings, with whatever I'm thinking about, especially if I'm like in a fight with someone or I'm, I'm in under stress, go out on the road and run. And it just brings that clarity. Also, mm. by the way, it, it releases endorphins and endocannabinoids and other, you get that brain, <laughs> what they call runner's high or whatever. I, I think a lot of clarity comes from that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so running and early rise. Sorry, what time did you wake up in the morning typically? Uh, about six o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which, which, by the way, doesn't, isn't early for a lot of people, but in New York, everything starts late. So when I get into the work, my office before eight, nobody is there for an hour or two. So. Yeah, I love it. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Ooh, my 20 year old self. Um, what advice would I give my 20, 20 year old self? Um, that's a great question. I haven't had that one in a long time. <laughs> I think I would say stay curious. Yeah, nice you know, one. Because in the especially in the first uh, six or seven years of my twenties, I was sort of resistant to what I now do, which is follow my curiosity wherever it goes. But I was trying to do that, you know, the typical path of super specialized, super niche. That's how you get famous in a field. And and I was unhappy for most of my early twenties trying to make that work because uh-huh. I you know I was a, I was becoming a scientist. I thought of myself as a smart guy. But I would just get really bored with these questions that I was doing, even though they were good questions. But I was so focused that I lost my curiosity. So that's what I would say is don't fight that. That's interesting. Be curious. Be curious. Yeah. How would you define success? Um, I define success as a life that you find meaningful. And I'm ready for that question because I talk about it with my students all the time because I run the honors program at my college. And I say, what is it that you find meaningful? What is it that you find valuable? And it can't be money because that's the one thing that scientific studies has shown does not bring happiness is money. So what do you find value in doing? Is it, is it in curing a disease? Is it in helping people, lifting up your community? Um, you know, Whatever it is that you find value and meaning in, do that at the expense of everything else if you have to. But that's where you'll be happy because you'll feel like your life it has meaning, has purpose, and accomplishes something. Hmm. Yeah. So I know that sounds vague. I know it sounds vague, but uh, that's been my my rule: is, is if you find meaning in it, make a life out of it. Such good advice. What one tool, skill, resource, technique, etc., has helped you improve your productivity the most? Um. You know, it's, this is a really simple thing, but it has made a big difference for me, is multiple desktops on my computer because I'm really easily distracted. So if I'm working on a paper or an article or a, a, even a book chapter, whatever it is, I create a clean desktop with nothing on it and a browser that only has the information I'm actually looking up at the time. And 
not the other. So, and I have multiple desktops and those other desktops can have the chat window for my iMessages and my email and all that stuff can be else Facebook, whatever it is, get it out of your desktop. So that you can <laughs> say, cool okay, hack. yeah, I like it. Yeah. So for like 30 minutes or whatever your, you know, your window is of concentration and say, this is the desktop and I'm going to resist the temptation to go to any of the other desktops then I'll give myself a 10 minute break, but then I'll, you know, I really clear off my desktop and that has made a big difference for me because before every email that came in distracted me from what I was doing. Um, sometimes I would answer sometimes I wouldn't, but it distracted my train of thought. So I clear out my desktop with a fresh desktop, uh, when I'm doing a project that requires contemplation. And I think that's helped a lot. I like it. I like the hack. <laughs> if I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? Oh my God. That's a great one. You know, you know what I think it would be beef stroganoff. <laughs> I think it would be beef stroganoff. I just love it. I just, it's, and it's, it's, it's fairly, um, you know, not flashy, spicy dish, but I just, I remember the first time I ever had it and I, I have it any chance I see it on the menu. I'll get it. I love beef stroganoff. It's so good. That's great. Creamy, you and my wife get along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's got a lot of food that is terrible for you, heavy cream and pasta and, and red meat. Uh, so I don't have it often, but, uh, yeah, I think that would be it. Yeah, yeah. No, we haven't had it for a while, but uh, certainly it gets the taste buds going a little maybe, bit. Maybe what? a second choice would be, be lobster ravioli, by the way. But anyway, go on. Lobster ravioli. What activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Um, teaching. Yeah. Mm. So talking about, talking about science. Um, in, in, in a, in, especially in a classroom, but, but even like this, I consider what I'm doing now no different than what I'm teaching is just having conversations about science, uh, specifically about biology and, and human, the human experience and, and how we can, we can come to it. Cause I, I try to make my teaching schedule where I'm talking about this kind of stuff most of the time. So yeah, I think teaching is one of the, the things that I always feel like no matter what else I accomplished in a day or didn't accomplish, if I taught a class, if I had these conversations with eager, young, curious minds, then it was a day well spent. Yeah, nice. Important too. Yeah. If you could pass down one book to your children, what book would that be? Oh, dear. Um, let me just think for a second. That's a tough question. I, a lot of books have had a huge impact on me. Um, That's a great question. Um, what about the best book, maybe on evolutionary history? Oh, I think I think a great way to start, if you're not a specialist in this area, a great way to start is the Third Chimpanzee by Jared Diamond. The third I think it's just chimpanzee. the Third Chimpanzee. Yeah, and I when I read that book, it really it really changed the way I think about 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 the human body and mind. Um, and then of course I read, uh, the day before or, uh, the world until yesterday, he also read collapse. Actually, you know what? I think the, the book collapse is the, it's also by Jared Diamond. You can sit, you can tell I'm a big fan of his, um, that book talks about what all societies that have collapsed, what they all have in common and what, and it's, it's basically just about our inability to do long-term planning <laughs> and, I write a little bit about this in my book is that evolution has never rewarded a species for having willpower and self-control and, you know, thinking several generations ahead. 
that's never had a big payoff in terms of evolution. And because of that, our species, like every other, just can't do it. We, In theory, we can think a couple generations ahead, but it never affects our decision making. And I think if you look around the world today, you have abundant evidence that we are just not thinking ahead. <laughs> um, even if, like I said, theoretically, we know that we shouldn't be dumping tons, billions of tons of plastic into the ocean. But nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, not not nobody. There are groups doing it, but the, uh, no governments have have done anything to really stop doing it. Um, <laughs> so I so I think that um, the book collapse, and you can't help but compare this. And he talks about collapsed societies in Greenland and Easter Island. Um, and he, he talks about collapse in several different uh, world populations, world world civilizations, hmm. and it's it's really hard to not compare it to the modern world. And see all the signs that we are headed towards a collapse. We've been able to put it off for a lot longer because of technology, but we are really outpacing, uh, you know, resource use and climate change. All of these things are, bear all the marks of a of a society with imminent collapse. So I think that's the book I would give to my kids, to give to other people, to say, we this is our fate if we don't do something different and and soon. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I read that. I was just looking up his other book that I read too, and that's um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yeah, that's um, a great one too. Um, it talks about agriculture as well, but uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good one for understanding how the modern world came to be, uh, sort of geopolitically. But um, they're all, all of Jared Diamond's books are, are really interesting, even if I don't agree with everything. And I do want to say that there, there are some, some things I'm, I, I don't agree with him on, but hmm. they're minor, and, and it's still a great book. And I, I hope that people know that they don't have to agree with everything I say in my books either. And I do go out on a couple of limbs and I usually say that when I'm doing it. Um, but I think if, if you, if you pick up my book, if you don't, if you don't learn something new, then I failed. So I don't want to just repeat things that we all know are true. I really do try to go out there and push a little bit and go out on a limb and interpret things and try to, um, to you know, tread new ground a little bit. So, yeah. um, you, if you find yourself agreeing with everything I'm saying, I, I invite that criticism, you know, to, you know, other interpretations, that's how science works, you know? <laughs> so, so Absolutely. yeah, yeah, no, that's good advice too. Um, so I'll stick those, those links to those books in the show notes guys. And, um, I'll also stick Nathan's in there as well. So, uh, jump on, check it out. And if you can support the show, you can use the links in, in the, uh, in the show notes there to help support us here at the hidden why. What quote, phrase, or message would you text or tweet to everyone in the world? <laughs> these are these are tough. I wish I, I wish I had. Uh, I've listened to your podcast before, but I didn't pick up on this bit. Um, let's say what would I? What message or quote would I text everybody? Um, you know, I, I, there's an there's an African proverb that I always thought made a whole lot of sense. If you want to go somewhere quick, go alone. If you want to go somewhere far, go together. I love that because there are times when you want to be quick, <laughs> right? And, and it's best to just go your own way. But I, the real point of the problem, I think, is to remember that we go a lot farther and a lot better when we, when we, all, when we do work together. And the human spirit, uh, you know, shaped by evolution, makes us equal parts competitive and cooperative. 
And it's just the culture that cultivates one over the other in different contexts. So I think we have favored competition so much that we're not going far anymore. We're going fast, but we're not going far. So I think that we would, I'd like to see the world become much more cooperative, uh, both on the small scale and the large scale, and we'll go farther. Glad you brought that up, actually, because it was a question that I had down here. Um, yeah, about cooperative and, and competition and, and their purpose, I suppose. But um, yeah, I think we're we, people like to think we, we, they like to ask which one are we? We're both. We, we are yeah, yeah, absolutely. both. Hmm. Uh, and you can just activate one or the other with you know social cues and, and that kind of environment. And the best example of this is sibling rivalry, right? I mean, you will fight with your siblings left and right and compete for parental attention and blah blah blah. But the second an outsider comes in and threatens one of your siblings, boom, you immediately come together. Um, and to support each other. So it really can just turn on a dime like that. So we have those abilities. And I think the most successful societies are the ones that have pulled the levers and the dials to promote cooperation rather than competition. Competition is good for short-term gains and keeping us on our toes, that kind of thing. But I think long-term, it's really, it's responsible for some of the the worst catastrophes that we're potentially facing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you believe we all have a hidden why or purpose? Um, yeah, I think the, the, a, a well-led life is to figure out what, what your purpose is. And I, I don't believe in, believe in purpose in the mystical sense, like you were born and there with some sort of destiny. Yeah. But you make something your purpose. You, you're, I mean, you, that should be your goal in life is to discover what your purpose is. And also not think that it has to be huge and world-changing to be important. You know, if you just change one person's life – um, that was a great purpose. So, uh, yeah, I do think that finding your passion, finding your drive, finding what what makes you enjoy life uh, and makes you feel that you're doing something worthwhile. I do think everybody has it, and a, a life well lived is 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 finding it and then and then mm. doing it. So, yes, I agree with you. And you sort of just answered this next question, but it's what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Yeah, it just means that uh, you you've convinced yourself with. Uh, with the evidence around you that the world is better for your having lived in it. So if you've helped turn someone's life around, if you contributed new knowledge in some way, if you've brought people together, um, you know, and if you've led the development of this, it doesn't matter what it is. If you think the world is better for your having been in it, um, that's enough. We really don't have to have a higher, higher bar than that. And I think that sometimes we live in this world that does want to set the bar so high for success and for contribution. Um, it's so high that most people feel like they're never going to reach it. So they're going to live unfulfilled, like failures and all this. And I think that we just... Hmm. That's probably I, a big problem in modern society as well. And, and again, that competitive uh, yeah. nature taking over. Yeah, yeah. And I think that sometimes the following your passion narrative can be you know overly restrictive i mean you know some people you know there's some sort of basic jobs that we need people to do um you know maybe you you repair septic tanks for a living and it's like well is that what you were born to do is that your born purpose to fix septic tanks no but you can do it with passion you can bring the passion to your work you Mm, can do it well you can can do it well you can do it honestly you can you know because people who need their septic tank fixed are not that's not their best day. Uh, I mean, this is a very it's usually very bad when they need it fixed. But you come in and you can make their day better, and you provide a living for your family. So a lot of people find their purpose not in their job but in their family. That's totally fine. 
you know, that's, I don't think we should shun people for saying, you know, oh, well, what did he accomplish in life? Well, you know, if you helped raise two well-adjusted kids, then you've done a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And final question, what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Uh, I, I think everything I've said till to now in your questions circles around this main point is I am obsessed with the notion that I do want to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. And I think that I think everybody has that desire, but the way that I express it, because there's, I have gifts, but I also have weaknesses. There's things that I'm not ever going to be very good at. But one thing I think is a, a gift of mine, a strength of mine is the ability to teach biology and talk about biology of the human body in a way that people learn, but also can do something with it. So I think I made the world a little bit better when I write books and articles that convince people to live in better harmony with their bodies and, and their minds and hopefully make, you know, if they just make one decision, one that's better than it was without my articles or whatever, then I just feel like I've accomplished something. So mm. teaching biology is my purpose in life. And that's to my students, to the public, to whomever will listen to me, to the, to the person at the bar who wishes I would just go away. Um, I, that, <laughs> that's my life is, is, is uh, teaching biology and talking biology with people. Yeah, I love it. Cool stuff, mate. Look, thanks again for the chat. How can people best reach out to you and, and connect? Um, I think I, so I have a blog called the human evolution blog yep. and almost everything I do is there in some way, but you can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook, Nathan Lentz. And that's Lentz with an S. Everybody wants to put a Z on it. Uh, but Lentz, uh, L E N T S Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and my blog, human evolution blog. Guys, I'll stick all the links in the show notes. So do uh, reach out to Nate. It sounds like your kids are home there, mate. So I'll let yeah, you go. Yeah, my, my son just got home from school, yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure, mate. Let's do a round two sometime and uh, we'll speak again soon. We'd love to. Thanks so much. Check it out, guys. The Hidden Why podcast, thehiddenwhy.com, episode 610 with Nathan Lentz. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon